Our scripture reading today is from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 412. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think yourself that it is in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to such a kingdom as a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Good morning. Let's go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace, for this sweet opportunity to gather as a church and draw near to you together. We're delighted to be here. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his death, for your people, and for including us among that number. And we're asking that you'd be a help to us and a strength to us this morning. I pray for my friends that they would hear your word and would respond with the obedience of faith. I pray that you'd give me grace to be clear and helpful to your church. And so we pray that you'd be present with us this morning. We're eager to hear from you through your word. And so we give this time to you. We pray that you'd bless it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when have you worn sackcloth? When did you last handle some ashes? I think the closest I've come to wearing sackcloth is when I did potato sack races as a kid. Do you ever do those? And I suppose I handle ashes once in a while. I do like bonfires, and they leave behind a pit full of ash. And when I smoke ribs, like I plan to do this afternoon, happy Father's Day to me, <laughs> I always need to clean the ashes out of the firebox. So we're a little familiar, I guess, with sackcloth and ashes, but when is the last time you wore sackcloth and put ashes on your head? When's the last time you grieved by laying in sackcloth and ashes? We don't practice this, do we? But the Old Testament Hebrews did. They mourned by putting on sackcloth and, and covering themselves with ashes. It was a symbolic way of showing distress and sorrow. Sackcloth displays discomfort, and ashes display desolation and ruin. It was a common response to destruction. It was a common response to death. It was an outward show of what was going on in the heart, what a person or a community were experiencing and what they were feeling. I don't think we really have anything like this in our American culture. I'm not sure that we're that good, actually, at grieving. We seem determined to isolate ourselves from discomfort and death and grief. We do wear black to funerals. That's the closest thing that I could come up with. I think that symbolizes sorrow and grief, perhaps respect for the dead, reverence for the severity of death. 
But I'm hard-pressed to find a 21st century expression of sackcloth and ashes. Can you think of one? Moreover, you can't find the practice of wearing sackcloth and ashes anywhere in the New Testament. There are no New Testament examples of a Christian grieving with sackcloth and ashes. So, what's the New Covenant expression of sackcloth and ashes? Are we supposed to grieve, CMC? If so, how ought we to grieve? And what should we grieve over? These are relevant questions in a culture that's plagued with depression, yet unskilled in expressing sorrow and mourning. We don't really know what to do with our grief. How does the death of Jesus Christ as our deliverer affect the nature of our grieving? His death on the cross is very relevant to these questions. And for answers to these questions and help in this area, let's turn together to Esther chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Esther on page 410. This morning we're looking at chapters 3 and 4. They begin on page 411. So read along with me as I begin by reading the entirety of chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman 
sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now don't forget what's happened thus far in Esther. In chapter 1, we learned of the Medo-Persian ruler, King Ahasuerus. He has great wealth. Do you remember? Golden couches and the ability to throw extravagant parties. And he has great power, power that extends to 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Or so it seems, yet it quickly appears that he has no power in his own household. Queen Vashti defies him. She, she refuses to do what he demands and he resorts to deposing her and sending her away. So in chapter 2, we see Ahasuerus find a replacement for Queen Vashti. Through a series of empire-wide royal pageants, a new queen is selected, and this gives rise to the Hebrew beauty queen, Esther. Of course, no one knows that Esther's a Hebrew except her adoptive father, Mordecai. And we see how Mordecai faithfully keeps tabs on Esther throughout the process. The whole time, he remains aware of how she's doing and the things that are happening to her. And once Esther is chosen as the new queen, she's given the royal crown and, and an official feast is thrown. Esther's feast. The king remits some taxes, gives gifts as part of the celebration. And then the scene changes at the end of chapter 2 and we find Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. This means that Mordecai was some kind of official who conducted business for the king. The king's gate wasn't just a, a doorway into the palace. It was a large building that probably housed official guards and court officials and others who worked for the, the king. It's possible that Mordecai actually had an office there. And we see that Mordecai thwarts an assassination plot. Look back at chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair, was invest the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai learns about this assassination plot. He gets word to Esther, and Ahasuerus, the king, is able to foil the plot. His life is spared, and, and Mordecai gets the credit. Esther informs the king in the name of Mordecai. And the noble deed is recorded in the book of the Chronicles. It says, in the king's presence. So Mordecai is honored and promoted, right? For everything that he's done to save the king's life. That would have been appropriate, and it would have been customary. Normally, under circumstances like these, there would have been recognition for Mordecai and advancement. So where's Mordecai's feast? But Mordecai is passed over, isn't he? We're not told why, but this sets up a plot twist in chapter 3. Because how does chapter 3 begin? With the promotion of a new character, the promotion of Haman the Agagite. He comes out of nowhere. He's a surprise character, pouncing into the narrative at an opportune time. And this unexpected turn sets in motion the central crisis in the book of Esther. And the author establishes enmity between Haman and Mordecai, and that enmity is established immediately. Do you see it? Do you see how Haman is introduced in verse 1? He's Haman, the Agagite. How was Mordecai introduced? Look back at chapter 2, verse 5. Mordecai is the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, 
a Benjaminite. So it's Haman versus Mordecai. The Agagite versus the Benjaminite. And the backdrop for this is 1 Samuel chapter 15, where King Saul fought with the Amalekites. The king of the Amalekites was Agag. And Saul was the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So Haman versus Mordecai should recall King Agag and King Saul, who squared off in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And the Amalekites were age-old enemies of Israel. In fact, after the exodus from Egypt, Amalek was the first enemy to attack Israel. Israel crossed the Red Sea in victory. They had manna from heaven, water from a rock, and then immediately Amalek attacked Israel. And Moses sent Joshua to fight, and he defeated Amalek and Amalek's people. You probably remember the story. Moses was atop the hill, and when his hands were raised, Israel prevailed under Joshua. So Aaron and Hur held up his hands, and Israel, through Joshua, won the victory. And then listen to what it says in Exodus 17 at the end. Write it as a memorial. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's what's coming to these early enemies of Israel. In fact, right in God's law, written in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, it says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek. From under heaven, you shall not forget. Written right into God's law. This is the age-old enmity that exists between the Amalekites and God's people. And so once the people are in the promised land under their first king, King Saul, and they're attacked by Agag, king of the Amalekites, this is the charge that God gives to King Saul. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So now it's Agag, king of the Amalekites, versus Saul the Benjaminite. And the Amalekites are defeated by Saul. But rather than kill Agag, as Saul was commanded to do, he spares him and lets him live, along with some of the animals. And for this disobedience, Saul is deposed as the king of Israel. God rips the kingdom from him. And the prophet Samuel does what Saul was unable to do. He kills Agag. In fact, the text, in fact, the text says that Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Now in Esther 3, we have Haman the Agagite receiving a surprise promotion rather than Mordecai, the son of Kish, the Benjaminite. And the stage is immediately set for enmity. Do you see it? And all the king's servants at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. After all, he's now become the number two man, second to only King Ahasuerus himself. But Mordecai, he does not bow down and pay homage. He doesn't recognize this imposter, this enemy of Israel. And now can you understand why? 
Mordecai, the Jew, the Benjaminite, is not going to hail the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, as verse 10 calls him. No way. No way. And this gets the attention of the other men who work with Mordecai. They ask him about it. It becomes the daily water cooler conversation at the king's gate for a few days. And Mordecai explains to them that he will not bow, verse 4, because he's a Jew. Sorry, fellas. I am not going to honor that Agag wannabe no matter what you try to convince me of. Mordecai stands his ground. So these servants of the king report to Haman, and Haman pays special attention to Mordecai, and he's filled with fury. And he plots, not just against Mordecai, but in good Agag fashion, he plots against all the Jews. He sought to annihilate them, it says in verse 6, each and every one. So this is some feud, isn't it? Can you feel it? Can you feel the enmity in the text? This isn't the Montagues and the Capulets or the Hatfields and McCoys, some undercard match. This is the main event, a top card contest that involves the full scope of God's people and a divinely sworn enemy. And now look at what this enemy does. Haman determines to legalize a death sentence against all Jews. First, he uses his political position to gain royal permission for the destruction of the Jews. It appears that Haman gathers wise men or diviners of some kind, and they seek divine guidance for a date to annihilate the Jewish people. That's what's happening in, in verse 7. They cast pur. Pur is simply the pagan or the foreign word for lots. So the author says they cast pur. Then he translates the word into Hebrew, namely they cast lots. Pur or lots were something like dice, some kind of objects that could be rolled or thrown or cast, and then they would give a result. And there are times in the Old Testament when God sanctions the use of lots to determine his will. And of course, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And casting of lots was common practice among pagan nations like Persia to seek divine counsel. And this is what Haman sets in motion. Lots are cast to determine the day and the month of the annihilation of the Jews. So they cast day by day to determine the day, and they cast month by month to determine the month. And the lot falls on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And verse 13 helps us to see that specific date. And here's the irony. Esther's full of irony. Try this one on for size. Here's the irony. Haman, the enemy of God's people, has cast lots for the destruction of of the Jews. So he's inquiring about when to destroy the Jews. So Haman is, in effect, asking God, hey God, when do you think I should annihilate your people? Please tell me. But the true God of heaven, the covenant faithful God, the promise-keeping God, will not allow it. He'll give the date when the lot is cast. It's every decision is from the Lord. But Haman's fortunes against the Jews will turn. Esther 9.1 reads this way. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The reverse occurs according to God's divine providence, which was at work even when the pur were cast in the palace under Haman. So then Haman goes to King Ahasuerus and he tells him the plan and 
The king, as he's known to do, just agrees with what's suggested. No questions, no investigation. In fact, Haman doesn't even mention the Jews. The king is clueless as to what people he's even talking about. Haman uses half-truths and he uses full-blown lies to to persuade the king that this people is guilty. And he also offers a large sum of money. That always helps. And King Ahasuerus grants permission. He gives Haman his signet ring, which is like handing him his signature. It gives Haman authority over the whole kingdom. And with this ring, Haman now decrees a royal law that is binding according to the irrevocable law of the Medes and the Persians. An edict is sent to all the officials and all the territories under the full authority of King Ahasuerus. And each province is instructed to destroy all the Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods. So immediately the the Persian FedEx Express is employed and couriers hustle to the ends of the empire. And of course, the decree is also issued locally in Susa. And then look at how the chapter ends. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. You're meant to feel consternation at this point. The people of the city are in tumult. And not just the Jews, the whole city is in an uproar. The scene would be noisy and frenetic and agitated. And yet the the king and Haman sit in the palace and drink. The scene there is quiet and still and peaceful. Maybe somebody in the corner playing the violin softly. And the lingering question is this. Will God, will God who is unnamed throughout the book of Esther, who has sent his people into exile in a foreign land, will God still defeat Israel's enemies and raise up a deliverer? Well, let's read chapter 4 and see what happens. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hattak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hattak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hattak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hattak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. 
but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. News of this decree reaches Mordecai, and he responds immediately with lamenting and grief. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he goes out into the city, and there he weeps and he howls over the news of his people. And the Jews throughout the empire react the same way. In every province, there's great mourning with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and they too don sackcloth and ashes. And we're told in verse 2 that no one was allowed to enter the king's gate wearing sackcloth. It's, it's not a good idea to let mourning into the palace. It can disturb your drinking and your feasting. But Mordecai, Mordecai gets as close as he can, probably with the hopes that he'll get the attention of Esther. And it works. She discovers his mourning, and she herself is deeply distressed. And then Esther offers Mordecai a change of clothes. I think she probably does this as a way of trying to convince him to come to her within the palace, but... Mordecai refuses, so the discussion will have to take place through this messenger, Hattak. Mordecai is able to explain the decree with great detail and with physical evidence in hand, a copy of the decree. And then he commands Esther to go to the king and beg his favor and to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. And Esther's first response is hesitation, isn't it? To go before the king would mean certain death, certain death. The law forbids her to go to the king unsolicited. Those who do, they're, they're put to death. They're killed. The only exception is if the king holds out the golden scepter. But Esther's convinced that won't happen. It's been at least a month since the king has called to her. But Mordecai persists. He's persistent with the truth and persuasive. Esther's a Jewess, and she shouldn't think that she'll escape the decree just because she's queen. The law is binding on her as much as it's binding on any other Hebrew person. And if she remains silent, Mordecai says, she will perish. So the choice for Esther is death or death. But deliverance for the Jews will arise from somewhere. God is indeed a covenant, faithful, promise-keeping God, and he will deliver his people. And who knows, who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is confident that God will deliver his people, and he anticipates that Esther has been placed right where she has, by divine providence. And so hearing this, Esther resolves to embrace death for her people. She isn't any less convinced that she'll die, but she's willing to die. She consents to die. She accepts that death is her destiny, and she chooses to lay down her life for God's people. First, she calls a fast. She tells Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susan to fast for three days and three nights. And you should see this as an extreme fast, even a death fast. For three days, the Jews are to eat no food and drink no water. Nothing during the day, nothing during the night. Sometimes they'd fast during the day, but then eat and drink at night. Not in this fast. 
It's said you can survive three days at most without water. It's almost never said that you can survive four days without water. This is a death fast that Esther's initiating. And secondly, Esther declares her intent to die. I will violate the law and go in to the king, having not drank for three days myself. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then goes and does all that Esther told him to do. And that closes chapter 4 and ends our passage for today. Kids, that's the end of the story for this week. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to Esther? What will happen to the Jewish people? Well, church, I know you've read ahead. I'm sure you've read all of Esther in its entirety, haven't you? But if you haven't, spoiler alert, the king will hold out the Esther to Esther, the golden scepter, and he will show her favor. It occurs just two verses into chapter 5. You know what happens. And you know that she and Mordecai are exalted by the king and that a great reversal happens to Haman and the Jews. But don't get ahead of yourselves. Don't get ahead of yourself. And don't let your knowledge of chapters 5 through 10 lighten the impact of chapters 3 and 4. These chapters are all about death. Death was determined for God's people. And death confronted Esther. Esther faced a very real enemy. And there was a very real law that decreed the death of her people. And Esther was given a very real choice. She chose to die. She willingly consented to die for the sake of her people. And the death fast she employed lasted three days and three nights. Brothers and sisters, friends, I don't want you to miss the Lord Jesus Christ in these chapters. Don't miss Him as we read through Esther. All of Esther points you to Jesus Christ. The book of Esther is written about Jesus. It's texts like ours this morning that help you to see from the Old Testament that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Esther 3 and 4 concern Jesus. Because of texts like this, we know that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So can you see it this morning, CMC? Esther's fate is Jesus' fate. Esther's distress for God's people is Jesus' distress. Esther's consent to die is Jesus' consent to die. Her death is His death. You know, the enmity between Haman and Mordecai indeed goes back to Agag and Saul. But it goes back even further than that. It goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. When God cursed the serpent, the one who deceived Eve and enticed her to eat the forbidden fruit, this is what he said. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And ever since that declaration, there has been enmity between the serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. There's been enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be much more to say about this as the story of Haman and Mordecai continues in weeks to come. Haman is undoubtedly the seed of the serpent. He's prideful and, and wicked and furious at God's people. And he enforces a sentence of death against those people whom he hates. This is none other than the work of Satan. Satan is proud and wicked and murderous. He's filled with hate and venom. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
He's a liar. He uses half-truths and full-blown lives to deceive the world. And he's known as the accuser of the brethren, the one who accuses God's people day and night. So think about it with me. The Jews living in the Medo-Persian Empire at the time of Haman's decree were given an irrevocable sentence of death. Suddenly, a day of visitation awaited them that they could do nothing about. They were helpless. The law was against them, and they were going to die. And brother and sister, was not this your plight because of your sin against God himself? When you rebelled against God and Adam, you received an irrevocable sentence of death. The soul who sins shall die, the prophet Ezekiel says. And you're guilty of sin. You've broken God's law. You've transgressed God's commandment. And as a result, God's law is against you. It condemns you. And you're helpless to do anything about it. It is irreversible. And a day of visitation stood in your future. An appointed day of judgment was decreed. An eternal death and hell awaited you. And you could not deliver yourself from it. Do you remember, brother and sister, what that felt like? Can you recall the guilt, the fear, the helplessness, the anguish of recalling that reality, being, having your eyes opened to that reality? Do you remember understanding how it was that you deserved God's judgment? Boy, I do. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was February 2011. And my sin had become so clear to me. My guilt was obvious. My just deserts were plain. I deserved nothing but judgment. My situation felt helpless. I had sinned and there was nothing that I could do about it. And it scared me. My soul was in tumult. Ask my wife, Shannon. And then I traveled with some of you to Cameroon. Our church took a mission trip that, that month to Cameroon. And I can recall, it's very vivid. I can recall kneeling by my bed in this African hotel in Bamenda, and I just wept and shook under the terrifying reality of God's judgment. It would have been a perfect time for sackcloth and ashes. And I pled for deliverance. I begged to be saved. And then I'd have to put myself together and go to work with the team and I was helping a build a stone wall out of boulders under the direction of Tony Hanudel. that didn't help very much <laughs> then it would be dinner and another evening program and I'd hear the gospel preached again and next thing I knew I was back in that hotel room by my bed all alone weeping over my sin again now I know that your story brother, sister I know your story is different than mine but I bet you can remember what it was like for you to feel guilty and, and condemned and to be lying under the, the heavy judgment of God, to be weary and heavy laden because of your sin and, and to, to know that you have no rest for your soul. I know what that's like and I'm asking you, can you remember what that was like? And then what happened? What happened, church? You beheld the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gospel, didn't you? You looked to Jesus and you saw a Savior. You saw a Deliverer. He was willing to lay down His life for a sinner like you. He embraced death in order to rescue you 
Jesus saw your plight. He knew your guilt. He cared for the anguish of your soul. And He understood very well the law's decree against you. He saw you in all your helplessness. And what did He do? He decided to die. He went to the cross. He considered all of God's people, His glorious inheritance in the saints, and for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. Jesus surveyed the desperate needs of His people, and He said, if I perish, I perish. That's your salvation, brother and sister. You deserve God's punishment and judgment. You were enslaved to your sin. You were held fast under the law. You faced an eternal day of wrath and death. But Jesus died on the cross, absorbing God's wrath against you, taking the punishment that you deserved, and delivering you from the consequences of your sin. That deliverance is great, and it's all yours in Jesus Christ. It's all yours. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that means you have not yet experienced this deliverance from sin and guilt and judgment, this deliverance that I'm talking about this morning. You still remain under the sentence of death and a day of destruction still awaits you. And the problem is that you have not mourned your sin and your guilt. Dear unbelieving friend, listen to me. It's like you're a Jew in Susa, but you're carrying on business in the marketplace. Business as usual. It's like you're a Hebrew living in Persia with an edict of death against you, but you pretend it doesn't exist. You ignore it and hope this law of the Medes and the Persians will somehow go away. But it won't, dear friend. It won't go away. A copy of the written decree calling for your death has been posted. You're in Adam. You're a sinner. And God's law condemns you. You don't love God as you ought You don't honor Him and give Him thanks. You're unable to submit to God's law. You can't please God. And the anger and lust and the anxiety that's in your heart reminds you day by day that you're guilty. And so if you're honest, if you're willing to be honest, your soul is in tumult. It's uneasy. It's restless. And deep down you know that a day of judgment has been appointed for you. That God will call you to an account. But you haven't mourned. You haven't lamented your sin. You haven't come to the end of yourself. You haven't died. You haven't died to yourself. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. That's faith. That's what faith looks like. And taking up your cross is dying. Faith means dying to your ability to save yourself. Repentance means casting all your hope on Jesus Christ because you need Him to deliver you. And if you haven't mourned, you're still seeking to establish your own righteousness. You believe your sin isn't actually that bad. Or you're hoping that you'll do enough good to overturn the sin in your life. Or you're relying on religious performance, your religious participation, to somehow win favor from God. But the problem is none of these things will atone for your sin. You can't change your predicament. You can't release yourself from this death sentence. You can't deliver yourself. And that calls for sackcloth and ashes. Your sin has made God angry and His just 
judgment hangs over you. Your sin has earned death and eternity in the lake of fire, never-ending anguish and eternal conscious torment. You've lost all innocence and righteousness and you can't recover it. You're unclean, you're defiled, you're guilty, and you can't change it. Can't you see that that calls for mourning? Dear friend, sin is lamentable. Are you not distressed because of your sin? It would be right to go home and cry out with a bitter cry. It would be fitting to forsake food and drink if you were really undone because of your sin. You would say, woe is me! You would say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is what's depicted in Romans 7, verses 9-11. through 11. Just listen to these verses from Romans 7, verses 9-11. through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Paul says, sin came alive and I died. The law proved to be death to him. Why? Because of sin. He says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. How did sin kill him? Sin killed his ability to be self-righteous. That's how. Sin killed his ability to establish his own righteousness. Sin killed his ability to fancy himself a law-abiding Pharisee. Instead, when sin encountered the law, Paul died. Sin was shown to be sin. And through the commandment, it became sinful beyond measure. And your sin, dear friend, is no different. It's no different. You're enslaved to it. And again, I know how that feels. I can remember what it's like to be enslaved to sin. The more you read, don't covet, the more you covet. You try to curb your anger or your lust or your anxiety and you can't do it. In fact, at times it seems to get worse. Sin in you is producing death and God's law often arouses your sinful passions. And I'm saying to you this morning, dear unbeliever, let it kill you. Let your sin put an end to all your self-deliverance and all your self-righteousness. So will you, this morning, consent to die? Die to self-effort. Die to self-esteem. Die to self-justification. And be honest about who you really are. Die to yourself. And take up your cross. And follow Jesus Christ. He can deliver you if you turn to Him deliverance, if you stop trying to rescue yourself and instead you repent and turn to Jesus, He'll save you. He'll rescue you from all your guilt. He'll rescue you from all your sin. He'll take away your judgments. He'll give you rest for your soul. It's what He does for those who are willing to turn to Him. So would you be willing to mourn and lament your sin this morning, dear friend, and come to Christ? And church, CMC, I'm wondering this morning if you think it would be good to lament and mourn your own sin as well. When I look back on those early days of my conversion, I sometimes long to recover that humble, contrite heart that I had back then. Can you relate? Can you relate to that? Brokenness over sin yields much godly fruit, doesn't it? A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. 
In Isaiah 57, 15, this is what God says, the one who's high and lifted up, the one who inhabits eternity, the one whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I want to draw near to God with this kind of heart and with this kind of spirit, don't you? Don't you want to walk humbly with your God? Don't you want to have a tender heart towards Him? Then I think one way to cultivate that is to mourn over your sin. We get so surprised or alarmed or defensive when we see our sin. But it's mercy when the Lord shows it to us and when He convicts us. And it's an opportunity to nurture and develop a contrite heart, a humble heart. Lament sin when you see it, brother and sister. Feel the grief of it. Maybe cry because of it. That's okay. Confession isn't just reading your list of dirty laundry to God like a robot. I was anxious this morning. Sorry. I got mad at my wife this morning. Sorry. Actually, I got mad twice. Sorry. Sorry. Maybe put some heart into it. Lean into it with your affections. That's the content of real repentance. In our call to worship, the Lord declares, rend your hearts, not your garments. That's a call to heartfelt faith, which is a call to heartfelt repentance, heartfelt confession, heartfelt mourning over sin. That's new covenant sackcloth and ashes. We too often and too easily trifle with sin. We think it's no big deal. So we flirt with it, we allow ourselves to dapple with it, we play Russian roulette with it, but that shouldn't be our attitude towards sin. We should mourn it and lament it. We should hate it and turn from it. And there's no reason to get tired of repenting like this. Don't you get the impression that the Apostle Paul never really forgot where he came from? He always remembered himself a sinner. What did he say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. He always saw himself as the chief of sinners. He never seemed to quite get over the fact that he had persecuted the church. That's why he called himself the least of all the apostles. He said, I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And it would be good to to live more like this, wouldn't it? To be more aware of your past sin and and more quick to mourn any present sin that you see, doing so would help you develop and maintain a tender heart towards God. And I think it will give you a reticence to judge others so quickly. Nothing can combat your judgmental and disapproving attitude quicker than a humble assessment of yourself. Spend more time mourning your own sin, and you'll spend less time passing judgment on your brother. And mourning your sin will increase your willingness, I think, to serve others, to serve the church. Would you like to serve the church more readily and more eagerly? Lament your sin. I think it will help. A contrite and humble spirit doesn't feel put upon when asked to serve. Instead, it responds like the workers in Luke 17. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. So CMC, we have a deliverer who... Observed, observed our terrible state, our awful predicament. And he said, if I perish, I perish. So let's fight together to repent and trust him. Let's work together to cultivate tender hearts toward the Lord. A slowness to judge one another and an eagerness to serve one another by rending our hearts and lamenting our sin. This is New Covenant 21st century sackcloth and ashes.
Can I pray for you? Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to hear from it. Would you give us grace to now respond? And I pray that you would be kind to help us to see our sin and to convict us and to move in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you'd humble us and that you'd help us to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to love and serve one another well. And that you'd put down pride, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So would you humble us and would you give us grace? We commend ourselves to you as a church. We thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.